We use this time, this communion time, to take up a second offering called a benevolent offering for the sole purpose of, um, well, a benevolent, for caring for the community, for those who may come in who need some help, either financially or with buying food. Um, It's an opportunity for us to share the love of Christ to those who are in our neighborhood. So, and it's also an act of worship as well. Before we continue to worship God through the opening of his word, let us pray. Father God, we just thank you for today. Oh God, it's so good to just come. It's just good to come together. To gather together as your family to worship you. Lord, I stand in awe as I reflect upon this, uh, this table of what you have done for us. Jesus, that you stepped down from your throne, was born of a baby, grew up and died for us. Is, I can't even wrap my mind around it, but Lord, I praise you and I thank you for it. That we can come here and just worship you and through singing, through giving, through the opening of your word. And amen. Last week we addressed this real simple question. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? The answer is no. That's a simple one. Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly, but consistently breaks it in thought, in word, and deed. That's why the law is there. It is an act of God's grace. Because how else do we know that we need God's grace unless he shows it to us through his law? I desperately need it. Desperately need his grace. And better yet, I I, I need a savior. I need to be saved. I need to be rescued. And that's what the law shows us. It shines this bright, shining light. It, it says, as Romans 3, 12, 10 to 12 says, as it is written, none is righteous, no one at all. No one understands. And here's the catch one. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We are in need of being rescued. And that's what the law of God shows us. That we need to be justified. But in this passage that we're going to be in today, we'll be starting in Galatians 3, starting in verse 26, all the way to chapter 4, verse 7. There's a simple word. It's for. F-O-R. And it changes things a little bit. It reminds us that we are no longer, if you are in Christ, you are no longer under the the condemnation of the law. If you are in Christ. If you believe in Christ. If you rest in Him. Because as the Apostle says, for in Christ we are all sons of God through faith. He continues on in verse 27. For as many of you are as we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. 
And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. Verse 1, I mean that the heirs, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is an owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set before his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirits of his son into your heart, saying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. My sister, uh, she's a foster parent. And I've actually, just today, I've had a few conversations about people who have adopted uh, individuals here at Knollwood, which is, to me, warms my heart. I think adoption is an amazing thing. And you'll see why as we talk about adoption today, as we've been adopted into the family of God. So my sister's a, in a, a foster a foster uh, parent, him, her and her husband. And they have this wonderful uh, bubbly girl. She's got these like curly locks. She's got, she's, she's bad news. This child, oh man, she's cute. She's, on, like, she's, not, she's only two. Or no, she's not even two. How old is she? One, 18 months. She's a cutie. And she's had her since the very beginning. And as, as a family, as an extended family, you know, we, we've, adopted her ourselves she's our niece or our granddaughter she she's part of our family you know we've watched her and are watching her grow and learn to walk and uh she loves snapchat she loves it i don't know what's up with those filters uh i think every kid caleb my son he loves it too he's always sending me stuff not he doesn't have his own account okay (laughs) i'm not that bad of a parent but when we look at this, when we look at fostering and, and when we look at adoption, the wonderful picture that it is is you're no longer part of the family that you were in. You've been brought into a family, a new family. I remember when Steph and I were seriously looking into maybe we could foster, maybe we could adopt. And we, we started researching it. And, and, and sometimes, and at least in the Halton area, it used to be, probably not anymore, where you would kind of watch a video and, and you picked a child. Like there are older kids and you would, you would pick a child. And we kind of go, oh man, that's so sad. But think about it for the child. Think about this. You picked them. That's what adoption is. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He comes and he's, he's, he says, you are now in Christ. You are adopted. You are now sons and daughters. You are now heirs with Christ. I have picked you. Out of everybody else, you are mine. It's a fantastic truth that we see here. So Paul uses this picture of adoption as a way to show us what we are now, whose we are now. So what happens when you're not under the law anymore? Verses 26 to 29 say this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
We're no longer under the law. But through faith in Christ, we are now sons of God. We have now been adopted into his family. This is a family table. It's meant for all those who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. As we reflect upon what God has done for us. See, in justification, this legal term, the idea is that you have been made right before God. It's a a picture. It's a legal picture. It, it, It meets our spiritual needs that we need to be made right before a holy God. But adoption is so much better. Both very important. But adoption is an even better picture. Because... When we think about it, the judge not only declares you not guilty, he also gets up off of his bench and reaches down to you and says, let's come home. The judge is not just continuing to stand up on top of the, st- up, up, up on top of the platform saying you're not guilty. He gets up off of his stage, out of his chair, goes around that map. Sort of that massive piece of wood thing that they got going on there and reaches down to you in the defendant's seat and says, you are mine. Let's go home. Come home. You are my son. You are my daughter. J.I. Packer says it this way. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. You have, if you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are a Christian, not only does he say to you, not guilty, purely based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, but he says, you're mine. I can't wrap my head around that. It's mind-blowing. It's amazing. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he or she makes of the thoughts of being God's child and having God as his father. The holy, just, creator, loving, gracious, full of wrath too, God comes and says, you're mine. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls our worship and prayers and our whole outlook on life, it really means that we don't understand Christianity very well. The gospel isn't just some abstract thing that says, I believe this, and doesn't leave you changed. It changes you. It changes everything about you. Your status has now been changed. You're no longer a child of this world. You're a child of the living God. That is who you are. Not only has your legal status before the holy judge, creator of this universe, been changed, but you've been brought into his family. That's what Paul is painting for us trying to get us to see and to understand. As he continues on, he says this, For in Christ, 
Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For, verse 27, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. See, baptism comes up again. See, baptism doesn't save you. It doesn't. But it's an outward and visible of an inward and spiritual change. When we look at baptism in the New Testament, it's always proclamation of the gospel, receiving of the gospel, and baptism. Because it's an outward expression of what has happened inside. And as you're being baptized, it's not only just an act of obedience, but it's a picture as Paul continues to paint for us. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, put on Christ. When you're getting dunked into the water, you're symbolizing the old being gone and the new coming. The old life is gone. Your old self, your old family name, it doesn't exist anymore. You are now Christ's. That's why baptisms are so great and awesome. Because they're a picture of what God has done to us legally and also adopting us. It's a reminder to us as well, for us who have been baptized, stop playing in the dirt of your sin, mucking around in the muck. You're no longer in that life anymore. You're Christ's. You are his. So we put on Christ. The language here is like a changing of clothes. When we put our faith in Christ, we have put on a new self, a new identity, no longer defined by who we are, but by whose we are. You know, Spurgeon said it this way, you stand before God as if you were Christ. Because Christ stood before God as if he were you. It is in Christ now, as he continues on, that there are no more distinctions. Because here's the big point. Here's the main idea. In Christ, our identity is based on whose we are, not who we are. Paul continues on in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you all are one in Christ. This is, a, like, this is an amazing verse for this time, and for us too. You know, something that doesn't make sense to me, are, are, uh, the church history, church history is bad, if you've ever read it. If you ever want to see a picture of God's grace, just look at how many times we've messed up. Yeah, oops. Paul comes and says there's no more distinctions anymore. That there's unity within diversity, but not sameness in the church. We're not all the same, but we're united as different people. We celebrate our differences and our giftings. Our differences don't divide us anymore. Our our identity unites us now as we are in Christ's. It's an amazing thing that begins to happen. When we become Christ, our old life is gone, our new life has come, a new creation has, has come. And we're no longer identified by who we are or what we did. 
We're now identified as whose we are and who has bought us. And we are Christ's. He has bought us. He has set us free. We are his. It changes everything, doesn't it, when we think of that way. We don't look uh, in, in the church, in, in our culture, there's this idea of, of colorblindness, right? Oh, I don't see color. You know what we do in the church? We celebrate it. We go, look at this. What country are you from? I'm from Canada. You're from like, uh, we got some Jamaicans here, right? Jama- yeah, Jamaica. You know, and we're coming together in our new identity. And we're praising the same God who saved us. I'm no longer identified by who I am. I'm identified by whose I am. And I am Christ. Or Russia. Sorry, I saw you guys there too. (laughs) That's an amazing thing. It changes how we interact with each other. How we treat each other. And then churches who continue to create disunity amongst uh, economic statuses or, or ethnic backgrounds or geography are churches that are not being united in Christ. In fact, Paul will continue on because he begins to, in chapters 4 and, five, four and 6, or 5 and 6, describe what a transformed life looks like and some of that, in that one list, the disunity, those who cause discourse and disunity are those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which is why those who cause discourse and disunity in church membership are grounds for church discipline. Because you look at this, there's no longer any of these distinctions anymore. I am Christ. So Paul continues on in verses 1 to 3. I mean that, there er, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is not, no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You've got to understand the picture of the culture of the time. In the Greco-Roman society, even though you were born of royalty, of nobility, if you were a rich person, You had no rights. You were a slave. In some cases, the slaves were in better treatment than you. You had nothing. Until the appointed time that the father said, you're mine. Adoption could happen as a full-grown adult. Like imagine me, I'm 35 years old. I'm going up and my dad's like, hey dad, will you, you know, it'd be nice to have the family name. That's the world that they lived in. That's what Paul's addressing here. See, who we were, who we were, our old identity, as he says in verse 3, in the same way we, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. What was our old identity? We were enslaved. And as I was saying, every culture back then had a time during which a boy, even though he was an heir in the family, would basically be treated as a slave. At a certain age, the individual status would change and he would take the responsibility of manhood. 
he would officially pass from being a child like a servant to a son. Do you see the picture that Paul is painting for us? Because according to verse 28, the full rights of a son, including the full inheritance, are granted to all who belong to Christ, regardless of whether you are male or female, by the way. It's like this. Paul describes our old identity as like we're, we think we're free. We're walking around in this prison cell like I'm walking on this podium saying I'm free. But we're still in a prison cell. We're still enslaved. That is our old identity. We're going around screaming I'm free with the bars around us. And he says we're enslaved by the elementary principles, not only our sinful nature, but also a demonic aspect that Paul is addressing here. We're slaves. Verse 3, powers of evil prevail in this age and dominate the lives of sinful human beings. And the law of God, which can only condemn the sin of its subjects, is also an enslaving force. From all such slavery, Christ brings deliverance. In Christ, our identity is not based on who we are, but whose we are. We are no longer slaves, but we have been set free from the power of sin. So Paul comes and he asks this other question. Well, then what is our new identity then? If that is not our old one, what is our new one? In verses 4 and 7, he continues on. But when the fullness of time came, or come, had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The answer is, what is our new identity? Verse 5 to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as as sons. And the outcome of this, as Paul says in verse 6, I get to call the creator of this universe Father. And, And some of us might struggle with this, I think. Some of us have probably had awful fathers. I don't know where you are at this moment of time. If you want to know what the true definition of what a father is and does, who he is, who I'm called as a father to emulate, read the Bible. God has perfectly revealed himself through it. He is our father. At the right time, And verse 4, both theologically, religiously, culturally, politically, God sent his son so that we might receive the position of sons and daughters. God in his sovereignty was designing all of history for this moment in time. It was an appointment. Just as much as God has designed a moment of time when Jesus would come back. God sent his son, Jesus, fully divine, 
who alone could bear the infinite wrath of God. God sent his son, fully human, born of a woman. God sent his son, fully righteous, born under the law. He perfectly fulfilled all the demands of the law so that we could be his. See, adoption requires someone who comes at the right time and someone who has the right qualifications. Did you know you can't adopt anyone just (laughs) willy-nilly? You can't. Friends of ours are going through the process of adopting a CAS child, and the hoops that they have to jump through are unbelievable. Understandable, but unbelievable. They have to have the right qualifications, and they have to show up at the right time. So now we have the privileges of sonship, the ability to call the holy God, the maker of the universe, creator, judge, father, because we have a new identity, because of who we are. In Christ, our identity is not based on whose we are, but who we are. So what? I don't know if I need to say this. So what? Let's think of the things that the world gives us. Let's think of the things that our old identity gave us. Our old identity is based on what you are. Right? Your job, where you live, how much schooling you've got, sometimes what color of skin you have. All of these things. Christ gives us clarity. It's based on whose we are. It unites us together in this amazing thing called the church family. The world comes and and gives us confusion even more. Because sometimes it defines us and tries to say to us who we are. The world says our identity can be ever-changing. Christ gives us clarity and says your identity is never-changing. You're always mine. The world tells us to go find yourself. I never understood that one. Go, let's go find yourself. I'm right here. Christ gives us clarity and says, you are found. You're mine. The world gives us disunity. You you ever read the political section of the newspaper? Canadian? Canadian? Ontario politics? Oh, my goodness. Christ gives us clarity. He gives us unity. He makes us one family. See, the gospel brings people together. The gospel gives us a new identity. What's more, it brings sinful people with various backgrounds, with economic, geographic, ethnic, whatever it may be, together into a family. The gospel takes selfish people and causes them to love one another. Someone said to me when I was getting married, um, they said to me, I never understood how selfish I was until I got married. It's true, right, for those of us who are married? Or uh, I, I like to up it even more. I didn't understand how selfish I was until I had children. Because now I have no time. 
I think we can all say, if you called Nolwood your family, I didn't know how selfish I was until God called me into a family. The gospel takes selfish people and causes them to love one another. But when you read through the New Testament and have just experiences in general, we know that selfishness is a constant attempt, is constantly attempting to overthrow our unity and make us focus on other things for our identity. So how do we combat this selfishness? We are told to persevere in unity by walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. This is a humble, gentle, enduring, and loving walk. This is what perseveres unity rather than fracturing it because the gospel gives us a new identity. When we lose focus of the gospel, we begin to focus upon ourselves and what defines us rather than thinking about who has defined us. When we are in Christ, we are suddenly enabled to walk in this way because the Spirit of God is in us, changing us, making us more like Christ. As long as we are on the side of glory, as long as we're on this side of glory, and that's just another churchy knees word of saying, as long as we're not dead, we need to be praying for unity. That we would live in our new identity. We need to ask that we would walk in the gospel leaving footprints of humility. So I pray, Father, cause us to be united together as a church in love. Because in Christ, our identity is based on whose we are, not who we are. We've been adopted. If you're a Christian, you have been adopted. You no longer have your old last name. You have a new last name. You no longer live in the house that you once lived in. You now live in a new house with a new family. When I was in Jordan a few years, a few is more than that now. We're working on over a decade. Actually, not working on, over. Um... I remember sitting there. I went and I got to experience my first prayer meeting in Jordan. My first, the first Christian prayer meeting. In recent history, obviously, because Christianity has been there a lot longer than here. And you see all these people. I had no idea what was going on because they're all speaking Arabic. But you could feel it. Because let's get this straight. The Spirit in me The spiritual blessing, the blessing of being part of the family of God is that you now have the Holy Spirit within you. The Holy Spirit in me doesn't say to the Holy Spirit in you, I hate you. That doesn't make any sense. Because I've been adopted, I'm now part of the family of God. I have a name change. And in Christ, I have a new identity. I am his, and he is mine. I'm no longer a slave to my background, to my past, 
to who I was. I'm now a slave to Christ and what he has done for me through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us stand and continue to sing.